Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Jason Day, Roy McElroy. Those guys have, what do they play, 17 tournaments a year? And my young kid, Siwoo Kim, uh, been with them since the LA Open. And I love this kid, and everyone's going to know about this kid. He's, he's seriously special. He played 14 out of 16 weeks. Ball speeds down 10 miles an hour, all this stuff. And, you know, it's like, hey, young man, come here. Let's. He's 21, right? I mean, so I, I have empathy. I get it, right? But we need to look at this. 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 With a player like that, by managing schedule, kind of looking at overall diet and, and, and using, you know, using biochemistry and blood work to see what we're intolerant to, what we're tolerant to, uh, doing tests with sleep, dehydration, all those stuff. If I just run those things with the medical doctors I know and some of the, the other sports performance experts I know, I could help a guy like Siwoo Kim so much before I even look at his golf swing. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another Knockdown podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening in. I'm quite excited to have one of my favorite people in golf, Sean Foley. He, uh, of course, is well known as Tiger Woods' swing coach and Justin Rose's and a handful of other guys, but also one of the most eclectic, interesting minds in the game. So, Sean, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. You might be the only guy in tour I can ask this. Give me your top five MCs. Yep. This is, I've probably put more thought into this than the golf swing, to be honest with you. I know that. My first, it, it changes on a week-to-week basis, but the top five remain the same. So we say top five. So what I'll do is I'll do the old generation, new generation. So from the old generation, my top five is Nas. Uh... Black Thought from the Roots, uh, a.k.a. Tariq Trotter. Uh, third is Rakim. Fourth is KRS-One. And fifth is Guru from Gangstar. No Chuck D? Nope. No, no. No, Chuck D is dope, but Chuck D is not my, he's, he's not totally my guy. Um, I like Chuck D, but he's not my top. Like, Jay, for example, like Jay-Z and Biggie are not my top five, right? Um, and from the new generation, my top five are uh, Joey Badass, Kendrick Lamar, obviously Jermaine Cole, J. Cole, um, Isa Gold from the Underachievers, and uh, Sky Zoo from uh, Brooklyn. You have given this a lot of thought. Oh, yes. It's like there's, the, there's the classic golf courses in the modern. You've, you've expanded yeah. that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if I'm, I've seen fights start over top five list. Um, but, yeah, it, it's uh, – I don't know. My love affair with hip hop, I think my, if you ask my mom, it started when I was about nine and I asked her to take me to the Y to do breakdancing classes. So I, I was really funny in the suburbs of Los Angeles, walking around with my cardboard and spinning on my head everywhere. But um, I think I saw Beach Street and then I heard Curtis Blow, These Are the Breaks. And my mom is West Indian, so there's always a lot of reggae in the house. And hip hop started from Jamaican immigrants to the you know, to New York City, basically. Um, and that's how it began. So, and then from a group standpoint, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, you know, Outcast, all the... All See, the I might stuff. put Q-Tip in my top five. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Q-Tip is, you know, Q-Tip is fantastic. Q, I think Q-Tip, you know, from arranging the music to producing it to like all those great beats that 
the tribe had that even though Ali Shaheed Muhammad was the was was the DJ, um, a lot of those great beats that they had was just Q-tip in his room with the synthesizer. Um, and he's got, you know, he's got vaults and vaults of old albums and, and old hooks. So, yeah, it's just, uh, it's really funny, man. I just don't know what it was about it, but I think that, uh, obviously I love language and linguistics. Um, and you know, these guys are fantastic. I, I was wearing a shirt the other day that said hip hop is not on the radio. And this guy said, what do you mean by that? And he asked me, well, who do you listen to? And I told him a bunch of guys. He's like, I've never heard of them. I said, that's because it's not on the radio. <laughs> I was the first guy on my eighth grade basketball team to have it straight out of Compton. Oh, so. wow. You know what? I was, I was anti, I was anti NWA. Um, I understand, you know, I understand with Compton and where they came from and stuff, but I've always been much more into the conscious, uh, and they were conscious to an extent, um, but I'm probably a little more Mandela than Malcolm X, even though I, I respect both of them. Yeah. So I, I just never thought like, you know, it, it, the West Coast to me has been pretty much non-existent. Um, those are those are fighting words, Sean. Until the far side, until the far side, and hieroglyphics, and then Ice Cube's cousin Della Funky Homo Sapien came out, and then Jurassic Five were really super dope too. But yeah, I was just never. I was never into the gang banging um, stuff. I, have, I, I first of all, I, I, I understand, I recognize that it happens, but um, I didn't. I never really grew up in anything like that. Didn't see anything like that. And I appreciate that they had to get the word out about what was happening with the LAPD and what continues to happen in police departments all across the um, the United States. It's uh, look, police officers, all the ones I've met. They are uh, fantastic people, but there's there's not a few bad apples. There's a lot of bad apples, and those guys brought the. I mean, if you if you took from today's generation, the Congress wanted to figure out what was going on in some of these neighborhoods, from Chicago to Houston to L.A. to you name it, every major city in the U.S. to bring in Q-Tip and Nas and people like Rakim and KRS and from the younger generation, Joey and Kendrick, and speak to Congress. I'm like, guys, this is what this is what the deal is. Because unfortunately, I don't think a group of men who went to Ivy League schools are going to have any idea of, of, of what's really going on. And I think it's, uh, you know, that to me, it's a uh, escalation um, of, of when the slaves were freed and they went north and the people in the north were like, glad to have you, but we're going to really establish institutions that are not going to be good for you. So it's uh, everything we're seeing today is a function of Jim Crow and now we're neo Jim Crow. And, um, you know, what does it have to do with golf? It doesn't have anything to do with golf, but I think I got to the place I got to in my career by asking why a lot and not accepting the standard answer. So, you know, I'm hitting the ball, I'm hooking the ball, and they're telling me I'm coming over the top, but I'm telling them, like, my divot's 20 degrees in to out, so how can I be coming over the top? And that's the, at 14 years of age, starting to understand the club face and path and saying, I think it's doing this and this, and they're saying, well, the PJ manual says that. And so it's the same, I guess I've looked at everything, um, in my life that way through a really fine filter, a microscope, um, and went down the wrong road like way too many times. But um, it, it's all related to me. I mean, it's my favorite part of your biography is that you went to a historically black college in Tennessee. 
I'm picturing a shy kid from Canada. Well, definitely not shy. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking a kid from Canada. What was that experience like as far as shaping your, your worldview? Wow. I mean, first of all, first of all, as a Canadian, um, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I, I grew up for a little while in Delaware, and then I grew up in uh, San Fran and L.A., but I was so young at that time, and I wouldn't say that those places are really that way, so to speak. So going to Tennessee, I mean, I went there not because it was a historically black university, but because I just had such bad school grades, and I was just slightly better than average uh, as a one handicap. Um, they gave me a you know, full scholarship to play golf. And uh, I'd say what I was grateful for is after the first year was really difficult. And I appreciated why I kind of got it. It was like opportunity for payback on someone. And so I was the payback of so many. And, uh, you know, to be 19 and endure a year of incredible pain and just inc incredible stuff, um, I think I was appreciative because I thought, you know what? I mean, I can keep getting up and getting the dust off me and just keep getting up every day regardless of how difficult it gets. So if I can make it through this, like life's going to be a breeze. And it's truly turned out that way. I remember one time I was talking to someone and I said, how do you deal with all the criticism of being Tiger's coach? And I said, well, I mean, you got to expect it. I said, but that being said, um, try walking with me in my freshman year to English class. <laughs> you know like, what I mean? Like paint a picture for me. Are, are guys just saying things or are you? Getting, yeah, you know. It, it, are you getting stuffed in lockers? I mean, I, mean, not, I wouldn't say so much stuffed <laughs> in lockers, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it could get a little, it could get slightly dangerous from time to time, but that's also just cause I had a big mouth. I mean, I could have, I could have, <laughs> I, I probably could have handled it differently. Um, but you know, when the time, by the time I got done, uh, after five, I was on the five year program, I liked it so much. I stayed for five years. <laughs> yeah. I stayed on campus for all five years. All the golfers stayed off campus and, uh, you know, I really fell in love with the whole with the whole culture and the whole, I mean, I was already very much into hip hop and what have you, uh, probably, probably knew more than probably everyone at my school. Um, <laughs> and we had a lot of guys who were from the South, obviously being in Tennessee. So I remember when like eight ball and MJG and all the Southern rappers started coming out, I was like, wow, what is this? I, this is, this is not hip hop. Um, so I almost got into it a few times over that, but it's just interesting <laughs> to go to, you know, to go to a party and not get, and go to the front door to go in and they won't let you in because, you know, you're a white guy. It's just weird when that happens. Yeah. And to, so to think that they've spent their whole life for generations that way, you know, I had empathy. I appreciate it. It's not like it wasn't African people who put Europeans on, on slave ships. You know, it's like this incredibly huge genocide that's never been talked about. I mean, hundreds of millions of, of skeletons are at the bottom of the bottom of the ocean. Um, and then just the whole system that's in place, um, you know, I could see it from, but I could see it from 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 both sides. So, I think I utilized my time there. I think a lot of people left there thinking, oh, I'll give more people a chance because you know Foley was cool, and so you just understand, like man, like skin is just, you know, our skin basically is a function of how close we were to the equator for many generations. It's that simple. So. You see the Swedes, they're like 6'4", and they're very light-skinned, blue eyes. And 
blonde hair. Well, they didn't really need to have melanin. They didn't need to have a pigment to help them protect from the sun. So it's amazing of how much world history and, and people's ideologies have been built off of the fact of how close we live to the equator, you know? So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an astonishing, it was an astonishing time and it was so necessary. I mean, I think sometimes like if my son was to get accepted in Harvard, if I would just send him to Tennessee state, I don't think I could have learned more than four degrees at Harvard because you kind of learn how to deal with life in that kind of thing. And so, you know, I have great parents and Canada's a great place. Yeah, people, it's very rare that you ever see or hear anything like that up in Canada. I mean, obviously the English have the thing with the French and what have you, and we weren't, we weren't good to the native Canadians either. But, um, you know, Harriet Tubman came out just south of Toronto, right? Yeah, exactly. That's well said. What kind of, you know, cognitive dissonance did you have being in, in the game of golf as your, your consciousness is expanding and yet you're, you're playing this game? I and mean, you went to college right after Shoal Creek blew up. Yeah. Um, you know, the game was just beginning to grapple with kind of its own dark side. And it must have been, it must have been, it must have been some tension for you embracing the sport you love and it's how you're getting through school and it's, it's your, it's your future. And yet the game was even farther behind than the rest of society. Sure. I, I think, you know, I think that, um, the thing for golf for me is from day one, I worked at golf courses, whether I was picking the range or cleaning the pro shop or cleaning clubs and all that. So I never, I never really had, you know, much of a membership or anything like that. And I always worked at public courses. So golf to me was always this thing of sex, of, of, of self-exploration and just trying to get a little better every day. So it wasn't like I wasn't signing chits to my dad's number. So I never really was into golf that way. It was like, I want to play golf. All right, here you go. Pick the range. Uh, you work hard enough. We'll cut you some clubs down. And then I was always fascinated with the teaching pros and the pros in the pro shop right away as a kid. So um, I never really saw that part of, of, of the game. You know, I, I, I didn't really see it because I wasn't really a part of that. Uh, plus in Canada, it was slightly different as well. Um, so it wasn't really that. I mean, I remember, I remember getting out of my buddy's car with my you know, we were sponsored one year by Polo with our Polo clothes on, walking up the front steps past the football players with our golf bags on. <laughs> How'd that go? That was it, well. It became pretty good. I mean, it actually became quite funny. And and I, I I ended up many years later sitting on the same steps, giving grief to everyone who came up. Um, but yeah, like look, it's Michael J. Fox and <laughs> hey, Ricky Schroeder. Hey, what's up? So it was it was it was pretty it was it was pretty classic because I'm gonna I'm gonna bet. I mean, I couldn't have been like the better stereotype, um, but the funny part is like I'm, I couldn't be more different than the stereotype, even looking like the stereotype. So, but they didn't it, know that. that that's well, and that, I think that's where the empathy comes from. Like it's like, you know, you just have to realize like people only know what they know, and you know, there's knowledge and then there's wisdom, and I think when you add knowledge and wisdom together, you have understanding and. I think if you don't have knowledge and you just have experience, you can't truly have understanding and vice versa. So I think when you know that, um, I never really took it personally. 
um, I don't take much personally because I think most of the time people are maybe attacking us personally. You know, they don't know what it's like to walk in our shoes. And I think that comes back to my parenting and how my parents raised me. And I mean, growing up, you know, we could go out and get in trouble when we were kids in high school and do all that. But if we disrespected someone due to like race, culture, religion, or anything, I mean, that would be my dad's knuckles up the side of my face for for certain. So that was always, my parents had their negotiables and their non-negotiables. And that was always part of the non-negotiables. And then I'm, I'm really, I do the same with my son now, but my dad introduced me to all those thinkers of that time from James Baldwin to W.B. Du Bois to Malcolm X to Dr. King, Medgar Evers and all that. And I don't quite know why my dad knew so much about that being a Glaswegian from Scotland. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I guess I was just really fortunate that my dad taught me those things and thought, you know, look, life is hard, right? And there's books out there that are 500 pages on how to be happy and then people read it and they can't be happy all the time. They think something's wrong with them. But to me, I think life is more about how much pain you can endure rather than how many good times you have, because I think they're both temporary, but you know, it's, it's important. That's the thing I fear, you know, now is looking at like this younger generation and my neighborhood. And I look at these kids and all that we give them and all that. And I just wonder like, what are they going to do when we ship them off into the world? And cause the world doesn't care. They're going to come home and, and live with their parents, right? Life doesn't care, you know? So I learned that quite early on and that's been very, it's been really, really helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, also from a communication standpoint, I would say by the time I left Tennessee state, I was probably one of the most recognized people on campus and not obviously just cause I was, I, I was a white kid, but, um, I kind of embraced a lot of, a lot of everything and so I figured, you know what, if, if you can if you can make it through this and come out the way you did, then you just need to be patient in life and just keep working hard and you'll be fine. So it's kind of this, I guess I learned there that no matter what happens, I'll just be okay. You know, not great, not, not bad, not fantastic, not terrible, just I'll be okay. And I think that it's funny, I say that to people now. I say, how you doing? I say, I'm doing okay. And they go, oh, you're, okay. you're just okay? I'm like, well, that's good enough, isn't it? It's a good baseline for sure. Okay, it's okay. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. I'm 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 here nor there, but um, yeah. So I'm I mean I'm super I'm super grateful for it. Like to be put in the Hall of Fame there at school and stuff is pretty crazy. Like me right next to Richard Dent and Ed Tall Jones. Um, These guys could play. Yeah, they could super play. But it's, it's it would be funny if we ever took a picture of the three of us together. You know? <laughs> I'd be up to their belt line. You know? What is your greatest accomplishment as a college golfer? none of the above I mean maybe top 10ing a few times I think I finished like maybe 13th in conference one year but the thing is I was on my way I think to being a decent player like would never have played out here but I don't I don't remember growing up ever dreaming of being out here like I was always into the swing and coaching there's no doubt about that like I was very much into that that, I mean it kind of has the ring of myth that you, you saw Ledbetter working at a Canadian Open when you were a teenager. I've never heard that story from you. Is that is that is that? Yeah, really that's how the truth. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's yeah. It's, Set the scene for me. Well, the thing is, it's been written so many times, right? Like, you know, my 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 prom date. It now that I'm 42, if my prom date's probably more beautiful now than she was that night, right? You know, how nostalgia Always. how nostalgia yeah. works. Um, and I was taller. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, I, well, the, the thing is where the teaching came from was I, I didn't real, I didn't learn this till many years after and someone pulled me aside and said, cause my dad was always completely out of it or so I thought, but he, because my dad was a, uh, he knew I was keen and my dad was a chemist, um, he started me in my first lesson was with Greg McHatton in Valencia, who's pretty much top of the hierarchy of the golfing machine. So my dad wanted it to be something maybe slightly evidence-based because, you know, there's so much opinion. Yeah. And him as a chemist is like, it's not really opinion. So I started with that. And then everywhere we moved, I didn't realize how much thought my dad had put into the person that he put me with. Were they all golf machiners? Uh, not uh, Mike O'Donnell in uh, back um, in Vancouver was when we moved up there. So he put me that kind of in that way, and then when we moved uh, to Vancouver, Jack McLaughlin was a famous Canadian golf coach. He coached Laurie Kane, Richard Zokel, Ray Stewart, Brent Franklin. So he worked at Shaughnessy. Um, so I started working at Shaughnessy um, in the junior program. And so I used to sit on a wire basket and watch him teach them all day. And then when we moved from Vancouver to Toronto, my dad had talked to Jack, and Jack was very close with a Canadian named Ben Kern, who died of cancer many years ago, uh, be a decade or so ago. And Ben was a disciple of George Knudsen, but Ben was the first Canadian to finish First Team All-America, was sponsored by Trevino out of New Mexico State then met George and went that way. So, but it was around the time I was 15, I'd go into Ben's office at the National up in Woodbridge, which is one of our great courses in the country. And uh, he was like, I can't answer your questions anymore. So I was going down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> what was so transfixing for you about watching these guys give lessons? I just don't know. Well, the thing with Jack was like, I could be sitting there with Brent Franklin and, and Ray Stewart who Brent Franklin still to this day hits it as good as anyone I've ever seen. Um, and so I think I was kind of immersed in one, the coaches and then two, the players. I I've always loved pro golfers in the sense of, I think, you know, you always admire some, you always admire, I always say to Rosie, like, I know exactly what you're doing. I just don't know how you do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Just nine holes in a row of not missing a shot. And it's just like, wow. Um, the complexity to be able to do that. And they make it look so easy sometimes, right? Sure. I mean, sometimes golf looks like it's so easy and sometimes it looks like it's never been easy. And I think that that's the, the beauty of the game. But I, I, I don't quite know, really, to be honest with you, what it, what it was. It was just something that was, you know, was there. I asked Niall Horan uh, at the LA Open this year, when did you get into music? He said, well, when I was four, my dad took me to an Eagles concert and that was it. He doesn't really know what it was. Uh, so I feel the, the, the same way. But, yeah, I'd hang out in the pro shop all day and talk about the golf swing and argue and discuss. And... But, yeah, I did see Ledbetter and Butch Harmon at the Canadian Open. And it was like when I was 13. And I think Butch was with Greg Norman at that time. And Led was with Faldo and Price. Um, so I was already super into golf pros. And obviously I had read, you know, growing up I was like big into Chuck Cook. I still love Chuck Cook. Butch, Led, um, John Elliott, Davis Love, 
Jack Lumpkin, who I just saw today, which is so cool for me. When I see him, I'm like, oh, hey, Mr. Lumpkin. You know, it's like crazy, right? It's funny. Like when I first came on tour, obviously when your heroes become your peers, it's like a super weird thing. But even after 10 years, when I still see them, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Look at that's Butch Harmon. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's. <laughs> I like that. I mean, you're not you're not jaded. No, like, oh no, 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 no. I've become you know the last ten years. I feel like I've never been myself more than I am now. Um, I think that's what it is. It's like I was listening to a psychologist talk about one of their players saying that uh, he's in a good place right now, and I said, well, we're always in a good place. We just take ourselves out of it. It's not like you don't do anything to get into a good place. Like well being is nothing that's built. It's just something that's blocked. And it's just the illusion of thought that makes people think that. So it's, you know, there's, there's a, it's very interesting out here sometimes. But yeah, look, I, you know, there's a couple of young pros who are out here now who, who said that I very much was one of the inspirations for them. So just to watch the cycle go from Butch and Led and Pete Cowan and all those guys to someone like me come along and then these younger guys coming up um, who are incredibly smart. Uh, maybe, but I don't know how smart you have to be, but they're very smart. Um, it's interesting. Like I, I never, I still think of myself as like at 42 being really young for a coach, but I just never realized like I was 31 when I first came on the PGA tour. We might see more of that now on the LPGA and PGA tour. But when I came out here, everyone thought I was like Stephen Ames, like little cousin, <laughs> you know? So it was, uh, it, I mean, I can relate to that. When I started covering golf, I was 20 and there's a right. bunch of crusty old dudes in the press room, so I know exactly of what you speak. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so no, it's, it's look, I still, I love coming out here. I love working with my guys. I, I, I kind of enjoy the whole, the whole thing. You know, would I like to spend more time at home with my family? Of course. But I think my wife's pretty aware that if I wasn't doing this, it would be like a piece of me gone. And, uh... That piece is very important in the puzzle of who I am. Um, so yeah, at some point, I'm you know at some point it's kind of lessened and lessened and lessened. I don't want to go back to if I have to do for the last ten years. If I have to do for the next ten years what I did for the last ten years, I can guarantee you that's probably not worth it. Um, but I think sometimes you have to get to the top of Everest to realize how absolutely freezing cold it is and that there's no oxygen. And the, the, the dangerous part is, what is it, nine out of ten climbers, they, they die on the descent, not the ascent. So when you start going down, then you obviously, you're not going against gravity, but, you know, you climb the mountain, so you're so dead tired. And now you've got to be more focused. Um, and I think, you know, I think we, we, we see that in people's careers out here. For sure. Um, it's tough to, like, there's not many people who go, yeah, I summited Everest nine times. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously you worked with the guy who, who climbed the mountain more than anybody in Tiger. And you're clearly a philosophical guy. I'm just wondering, in your, your many hours with Tiger, I mean, how much of it was swing and how much of it was mm. psychology? And he, wasn't, he wasn't very interested in, in when I, Tiger was, a, Tiger was all business, right? And so we, we, we would hang out, we would talk. I mean, he's, he's sneakily well-read. He's a, he's a sharp guy. I mean, yeah. you know, he might talk about at Stanford how he was like the dumb guy and there was all these jocks in study hall. Eh, Tiger. Tiger's an incredible listener. He's a massive observer. He's probably had dinner with 
50 of the top 100 most influential people on the earth. And he has a radar and he's listening. Um, so, yeah, we never really – no, we mostly just talk about our kids and stuff and just hit balls. and. Um, but, yeah, we never went too too much into that. And nor do I with any of them, you know. Um, if, 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 if the moment offers it up, then I might get in there or sometimes I may send texts or emails if I'm seeing maybe like an innocent misunderstanding they're having of the world around them. But, uh, you know, for the most part, like I'm not out here to be a didactic preacher. Um, I think it's more living by example. So all those years when I was with Tiger, when whether he's playing good or bad, we were still criticized every day. It didn't really matter. But Justin Rose and Hunter Mahan and Sean O'Hara never saw a second of that. Probably were amazed that like this guy now comes out to the range with me and he is dead present. Um, so I think that the 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 best leaders lead completely by example, and there's they don't talk at all about what they do. Um, and I think it's one of the advantages of being a teacher, like working with so many kids. I think people give people the advice they need to hear the most. So I, I'm able to coach myself all day when I'm talking to these kids about, you know. But, you know, when I'm out playing nine holes, if you had a camera in the trees, you might see a club thrown, you know, 50, 60, maybe 100 yards. <laughs> <laughs> nice tight right to left flight. Yeah, no, it's just uh, <laughs> that, that, it, it, that amount of, of, you know, that amount of anger when you realize that you suck more than you think you do, it can go in any direction but far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how much golf do you really play these days? I try to play once a week. That's good. I had I had some years there where when I had all the guys, I had five guys on tour. I was walking like 36 holes a day. And then I would go home and just say like, there's no way. Um, there's no way I can go to the golf course right now. And then when I went to the golf course, it would be like, and people are kind and I get it. You know, can I get a tip? Can I do this? Can I do that? <laughs> take, a look, take a look at my, I mean, I've been to the airport so many times where some random guy comes up. He's like, hey, how are you? I'm like, good. How are you? He's like, I'm good. He goes, do you got a minute? <laughs> sure. The next thing I know, it's a video of like his 12-year-old daughter and, and her swing. And the way I look at it is like people are like, how do you deal with that? I said, you know, 11 years ago, I was working as a personal trainer and teaching golf and waiting tables. And if you told me that 11 years from now, the worst thing I'd have to deal with is looking at someone 12-year-old 12 12-year-old 12 daughter swing in the airport, I would have paid you up front for it. Right. So it always helps to I think it every morning that I wake up, I kind of just I, I look back at and I reflect. I don't go into the past much, but I reflect. It's I find that it's it's very much foundational. It's very grounding to I think everything in my life changed and everything's changed. But I feel like I'm more of myself than I was when I started out here. Um, and I think the people who know me the best would say that, too. And I think that's what it should do. It's like. When your dream is to do something and then you do it and then you realize like, wow, I didn't see this far into the dream, you know, there, it's, there's always a gift and a curse, right? So the gift is that, you know, you've got to do this, but the curse is this, 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 and this. And, you know, for me, I like people. Um, and I think that people, as human beings, we, we can attain much of our contention and happiness based off of helping people. So... I'm kind of helping people all day. And even if it's only with their golf swing, it's not really that. Um, 
these are just personal breakthroughs. Like someone is at, someone is seeing you at a certain point because they can't do something. So to be able to show them that they can, um, is fantastic. And then get them to realize that they were pretty much their biggest obstacle. It's, you are helping with their golf swing, but you're changing their life. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, with the young kids I work with, uh, you know, we, I do a lot of parent education and, and we talk about what's going on and, and, and teaching the kids about this, this, and that. I mean, all the young kids that I work with, uh, who I work with, uh, pro bono if they can't afford it they 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 don't pay but they have to do essays on long walk to freedom by mandela they have to read about gandhi they have to read about thomas jefferson they have to read things they would never have read before they have to you know do a couple couple sundays a month in soup kitchens getting them to see really be able to influence them in 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 a lot of ways that's not just just golf and i take it you pick those books personally um yeah i mean there there's i got i love lots of i love lots of books but you know just even like watching the movie milk about harvey milk from sam fran i mean just getting them to learn about people who against all odds they just kept fighting and 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 kept fighting so you know what you haven't been playing good for two months that's fine like stop trying to figure it out and just keep enduring it and deal with it and you'll learn. Like you have to go through this right now. And I think when you know people are struggling, everyone's trying to help them where it's like the struggle is like part of the key to the enlightenment. It's like, I mean, that the suffering and the pain is it's all part of it. You know, it's it's not like we don't want it, but I always know that when I'm going through adversity, I'm like, well, you know what, you just have to keep waking up and just keep going. Um, and then in hindsight, two years from now, you'll give a speech on how grateful you are for this really difficult time because these are the insights that came from it as you reflected. Who are these kids and wh where, do they, where do they find you? Or where do you uh, find I've them? just been doing this for a long time. I mean, for, for pretty much I've been teaching since I was 21, so 21 years. Um, I'm proud to say that I've probably only charged 30% of the kids that I've coached who are junior golfers or mini tour players. Um, and what it did was it, it also allowed me a Petri dish to experiment. And like, if you had to basically just wait for paying clients. So when I first started working in Canada and Glen Abbey, I gave out like 10,000 hours of free half hour golf lessons and they came in series of threes. And, uh, you know, the, like right away in my first year, I was working 80 hours a week. Now I, I also had to do a couple other jobs. That was part of that 80 because they weren't paying. But as time went on, you know, my business grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. But then I had a bunch of these young kids who I couldn't let go of. And then I created like two hour programs at night where they could come and practice and use the range and I'd work with them. And I mean, I wore myself out for sure, but I, I loved it. And I just think that, um, you know, people say, you know, you do things for people because it makes you feel good. But I don't believe that. I believe that I feel good already, and that's why I do it. So I have to pay it forward. I mean, just the opportunities I was given growing up by those pros. Um, you know, my like we were. I'd say we were. We were probably we were comfortable, but nothing nothing crazy. So I was given. I remember getting like my first graphite shafted driver from one of my teaching pros, and like my first ping putter from one of my teaching pros, and my you know, ta my title is tour and, and, and all that. So, um, 
yeah, I'm super, uh, I'm super grateful for these kids because, you know, they, you know, they really show, I worked with them for so long um, that I got to see, you know, kind of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so I felt by the time I came out on tour, I was pretty battle ready to, you know, I had a lot of kids play in the U.S. Amateur, went to college, played Canadian tour, the Hooters tour, all those mini tours. So when I came out on tour, I was pretty comfortable with this level of play because I'd been working with kids like that for like 10 years. But the thing is, like, you just couldn't work with them if you had to charge them because none of them had any money, especially the mini tour players. Right. You know? I mean, I've always felt like you're one of the hardest working guys on the tour. No matter what time I get to a golf course or leave, you're always here. <laughs> you're, you're omnipresent. So what is keeping you going? Um, I have a lot of energy. I think like people have vertebrae. I think I have battery packs. Um, I think, but not just physically. I, I mean, you've, it, what it, are you but, trying to accomplish with your current teachers? What, what, is, what mountain is there for you to climb? It's just, the mountain for me is just self-understanding. It's got nothing to do with my business. It has nothing to do with anything like that. Obviously, you know, with, with, with all the great partners that I have is obviously respecting the brand, wearing it well, um, you know, uh, doing all that. Like just to be with Nike when they came out this year with the hajib for the Muslim women who are track athletes and to make them one that's like for performance. Like that's, that's who I'm with. You know, the program that we're doing with equality on the sides of the hats of the players and stuff. I mean, that at a time when people are trying to pull us further apart to see the Nike and, and obviously under Phil Knight's guidance and all the great people at Nike to see things like that. That's what I'm all about. I mean, I think that that's classic is just being maverick and for the right reasons, not just a rebel without a cause. But what just keeps me going is like, Someone asked me, one of my kids asked me, what's the key to life? And I said, well, that could be a billion things to a billion people. I said, but for me, um, the key for me that I found is I'm excited to wake up and I fall asleep quickly. <laughs> you know? Pretty simple. Yeah. That, and now it took a lot. There's a lot of a lot of books, a lot of meditation, a lot of all kinds of soul searching, being an idiot <laughs> to myself. I mean, you name it. Um but yeah, that's, that, that's, I don't know. It's just kind of being present and whoever's in front of me trying to help them in any way that I can. Um, but I don't, you know, like I've only been at one tournament that my players have won. I was at, when Tiger got back to number one in the world, I was there for that. And one, because it was 10 minutes from my house and two, because we'd endured a lot together. So I wanted to have that little moment with him. But like all the rest of the tournaments, I've never been there on Sunday to watch them win. It's never been part of my thing. Like you just blow out on Thursday or Friday. Well, no, I'll leave. I'll I'll leave on Sunday after warm up. And people, I was like, well, where are you going, man? Are you gonna watch? And I'm just like, you know what? If if this goes our way, then I'd rather celebrate it at home with my wife, who is absolutely sixty percent of me, not even fifty percent. This is none of this would be possible um, without her sacrifice. I mean, Kate could have. Kate could have been, you know, she could have had a fantastic career in IT or anything like that. So um, I'm super appreciative that she made the sacrifice to, I don't really think she ever saw herself as being at home as a mom. And, do, you know, some women are naturally mothers and some women have to work at it. And, um, 
you know, she kind of saw my vision and our vision together that we built and, uh, she, she put the sacrifice in, you know, so. So I was mean, Sunday at the masters. You, you didn't stick around for Justin warm up, pat on the ass. All right, mate, you got it. <laughs> See ya. I did the same thing at Marion. Um, and, and I, I do, I do it a little bit to work with disattachment. So when I want it the most is when I try to disattach the most and, and get away from it. So I think what happens out here, if you get too attached to it, it's like the reason that they won't let a surgeon do surgery on a family member. It'd be tough for them to kind of have a disconnect. So what I try to do is like, you have to be honest out here. We have to be honest, period. But if you get too attached to it, you become too protective of yourself and you might not say the thing that you need to say. And sometimes the thing you need to say isn't necessarily appreciated right away, but like after a sleep, it's respected. So, um, you know, always being kind of pretty avid reader of Buddhism. I mean, attachment is one of like attachment, ambition. Those are not good things as far as how the philosophy looks at it. So it's, you know, it's not about me being on Instagram with a picture with me and my player going, hey, look at what we just did. You know, like I'm super worried about the comparative aspect of social media and how it's affecting society and all these people with perfect Facebook pictures who are going through depression and struggles, but their life looks perfect. And I think it's a, I think it's a really, really, really could be a complete disaster for society. Um, I think it's going that way. And so I've just never been, I mean, I've never even had a website. I've never been on social media. I've never been on anything like that. I just had my own way. Now, if people do it and it's, it helps their business, I mean, I look, if someone is having success teaching golf, I'm their biggest fan. I know how hard it is uh, and period. But, it, you know, it's just like, you know, if you're going to post the winning picture from the AJJ of your kid who played good, post the kid who finished double-double the missed cut. You know, like you have to be a little more real. Good. I mean, yeah. Right. So this is before our lesson. This is after our lesson. Like, okay, whatever. It's stop. Don't do that. Right. Yeah. So no, I, I totally hear you. And I agree. But I'm, I'm thinking of you. You're in transit. You're not even, if you're on an airplane, you can't even watch what's happening. I'm no, like, I don't. It's torture. I turn my phone off. It's not actually. I found incredible peace in it. <laughs> right. I mean, how about, how about the, the best is like Marion. So Hunter and Rosie are tied for the lead basically after six holes. Yeah. That's right. And uh, so R Rosie warms up. Hunter warms up. Rosie warms up. Give him a couple hugs. See you later. Get up. Pack real quick. Rush to the airport. And even go to the bar in the airport and face away from the television. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is beyond non-attachment. This is almost like self-flagellation. No, no. I mean, look. What, what I do know is there's nothing I can do, think, or do, or think or that's going to change the outcome. I know, but just, just, to, just to see what's happening. Well, it's on, it's on DVR. <laughs> I'm going to watch it 260 times anyways as I start writing notes down, right? And um, so I get, on, I get on the plane. I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea. Um, I turn my phone off. I wasn't going to turn it on. I've done this like many times because I've been in that situation I'm fortunate enough to say I've been in that situation a lot. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> we land in Orlando, and uh, I was lucky enough to get upgraded. So I'm sitting up there having a couple beers with this cardiologist next to me, who I did talk his ear off. 
and told him. Just, just nervous talk? Just, I said, be prepared to discuss. And he was a lovely guy. He was a great guy. So he taught me about how the heart works, and that was awesome. So um, over a few Heinekens, him and I had. And uh, then I feel like this tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and this guy's got his iPad out. Uh-oh. And he's like... Do you try and run away? Like, you know what's coming. He's like... And all I see is Justin reach into the, in, into the hole, grab the ball, kiss the ball, and point it up to, um, to the heavens, to his dad, Ken. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Phil's behind him. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I mean, Phil's in the left rough. And I go, hold on. So, what's, what, so what are you saying? Like, what's the deal right now? Yeah. He's like, Justin has a one-stroke lead. I go, well, if, if anyone can chip in from anywhere, it's going to be Phil. So I'll step just off, step off, <laughs> just chill. And then I heard the guy after Phil hit it over the green or just to the back of the green. And, and then I realized, and so that, that was really cool. But I learned early on out here cause I, it, it happened quite a few times where I anticipated and the expectations got so high. So when it didn't happen, I felt like I was falling forever. And that that's what happens to people is, you know, we fall as low as we climb high. And so I like to think of now of being like at base camp on Everest. And I might go up a thousand feet. I might go down a thousand feet. But I can't get emotional because if I get emotional, I just make mistakes as they do. And then this year, um, this year, and then I did it the other time when Justin finished second to Jordan. I got in the car, turned my phone off and everything. And then at at eight o'clock when I figured they would be done, I turned my phone on and called my wife and then she told me what happened. Um, and then this year, this year I was, uh, this year I wasn't doing that so much cause I become good at it now. So I can actually just look at it and have no response to bogey or birdie, like literally no response. And, and you have to, you just have to learn how to do that. And uh, for, I, I do anyways. Um, I mean, look, if you coach golf or you play golf, you just become good at losing because Phil Mickelson is the take Tiger out of the, the, the scenario and Phil's the, he's the, the number one player of his generation. And he won basically seven out of every hundred tournaments he started. So the best is at 7%. So when people like, you know, was it disappointing um, at the Masters this year? It's like, no, disappointing would have been if we missed the cut. Because that's we never should do that, right? But it can't be disappointing when you watch your guy play on the weekend, maybe two of the best rounds you've ever seen him play. You know, it was beautiful. And the one under the first two days where we didn't hold many putts. First 12 holes on Thursday in that win, it's as beautiful as I've ever seen Justin Rose hit the golf ball. And there's a lot of contenders to that comment. A lot of days. And uh, more than anything, I just felt for him, you know. But you know, I've always said to him, it's meant to be like you were meant to win this tournament. He just looks so elegant and graceful out there. It just looks like his soulmate in a golf course. I don't know how to explain it. Um, I can see that. He really does. He just looks beautiful out there. I mean, take the Justin example. So the drive into the trees in the playoff, Uh huh. how much does that affect you well, as you're watching but, on the DVR? This, well, this is, no, but this is, no, this is me then getting to the airport. So yeah. My ever since I changed my iOS on my phone, it'll just bonk out in the middle of the day. So I've left the range and I went to check 
there on the first hole, phone's out. I'm like, of course. So go in, house is not far from the course, pack up, do a bunch of stuff, get to the airport like, I don't know, two hours later. And then I walk in and that terminal in Augusta's just got that one bar with the two televisions sure. and everyone's just right there. Yeah. I've never been there except that week, so I don't know what it's like the rest of the time. And uh, I left my soul on that range, so I was like, it's time to celebrate with the Heineken. I come walking in and all of a sudden these heads just go zoom. And everyone's looking at me. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, that's possibly a good thing. All right. And so this guy comes up to me and he's like, yeah, bro. And he goes to give me like a fist pump. And he's like, you guys are winning this thing. And I'm like, bud, they can't even be on, what are they, 11, 12? He's like, no, man, they're on 13. And I'm like, well, what's the deal? He's like, Rosie has a two-stroke lead. And I said, all right. And I said, well, what else has happened? He goes, well, he was down three strokes after five holes, birdied six, seven, eight. So I don't know any of this has happened. Yeah. Classic, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> so he's all pumped up. And I'm like, look, uh, what's going on? He's like, well, Justin's roasted one day on the middle. He's probably got six iron in. And Sergio's hit a snap hook. He blocked it on 10, snapped it on 11. He snapped there on 13. He's pulling a Sergio. <laughs> And I remember being insulted by that. Like, he's pulling a Sergio. Like, dude, you understand how good this guy is? That's the first thing that hit me. I wasn't excited that he was in the trees. I was actually pissed off at what this guy had just said about Sergio, who I'm not, like, best friends with. I just, you know, I'm, like, pulling a Sergio. What, pulling $40 million in a career and being amazing? So, anyways, I, uh, I get that. Now I'm seeing it. So now I'm seeing Sergio over in the, the bushes and I'd be lying if I told you like there wasn't a little bit of me that was starting to get excited. And then the veteran in me said he could still hole out for four and he's probably going to make five. And that's how I have to see it. Because the thing is, it's like people talk about momentum shifts, like the universe is creating this kind of like thing of momentum. But the fact of the matter is like if you're standing in the fairway, um, and you think the other guy's done, and if he makes par, now the momentum shifted, but it was just due to your thinking and time travel. So when he made par, I was like, all right, whatever. We still have two-stroke lead. I'll take that. And then the birdie on 14 uh, to our par, and then the eagle to our birdie. I mean, I would have taken 14 and 15 and one under par and never think we're going to lose two strokes. Um but Sergio hit eight iron from what, like 201 or some crazy number like that. All-time classic shot. A beautiful shot. Now, you know, if it hits a half an inch right, it's going to do exactly what Tiger's ball did. You think all the way? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, 100%. Off the middle of that flag, right where that pin is, right on the front edge. Yeah. But you just can't. I mean, look, more power to him, you know. I mean, the guy's like one of the... I would have, I would have, I think I would have hated as so many players would have, probably including Justin, is to see Sergio go through his career without winning a major. Those guys have been buddies since they were 15 years of age, right? They've played all over the world in junior golf and stuff. So, yeah, obviously Rosie wasn't happy, but I mean, look, after, after three or four weeks, if we can't look back at, at what he did and some of the things we learned that week about his kind of what we need to work on and the week before in Houston, um, we're in a good place to just keep going. And I think he's, I think, you know, of course he, there, it was a bit heartbreaking. I'm not going to lie to you. It was definitely, I had two days where I felt like I was kind of just in a daze. Um, 
But once I really looked deeply into that, that was all connected into my ego. It didn't have anything to do with, like, it wasn't real. It was just like, once I kind of got out of that lens and, and well-being came back and I realized, man, we just played, we were unbelievable. You know, we were unbelievable. I mean, he's, he's uh, like my five-year-old said it the best. He goes, I said, yeah, Kieran, we finished second. He goes, actually, no, Dad, you won. You just lost the playoff. I'm like, you're, you're right. That's deep. It's cute, right? Yeah. It's cute. Well, Daddy, you won. You just lost in the playoff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, if you told me at the start of the week that we were going to lose in the playoff and we'd have to go home and, I don't know, we might be like, well, hmm, it's decent. What's it going to blow on Thursday? 30 miles an hour around here? Yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have – an admirable perspective. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to this podcast and re-examine my my entire way of doing things. Well, no, it's not that. It's just I just think you have to, you know, if you're gonna stay out here. I've seen so many coaches come and go over the years, and and they're great coaches. It has nothing to do with their coaching. It's just there's no we and they mentality for me out here. When they're playing good, they're playing good, and when they're playing poorly, we're playing poorly. And it's not coaching like a team sport, you know. I mean, they're not giving the salary up front to do all that stuff. Um, and look, Justin Rose and Tiger Woods and Lee Westwood and Sean O'Hare, Hunter Mayhan, all these guys I worked with, um, now my youngest kid, Siwoo Kim, they were on tour before I met them. Now, what I will be, I'll be honest with you, I've had a couple times where the kids I started coaching when they were 10 were in the semifinals of the U.S. Amateur, and I was throwing up in my mouth. <laughs> So maybe that that might be maybe I'm able to do that more so with these guys. Whereas like when my kids are in contention now, they're 21 and I've been teaching them and they got five holes to play in the NCAA championship and they're in the lead. Then I'm pretty much a mess. But I think, you know, I was there for the breakups with their girlfriend or boyfriend. And when they got in their first fight or the first time they got drunk or whatever it was. Right. Um, so that's a little different. And that's because I developed them. Whereas these guys, I, we're just as coaches out here. Um, we just need to, you know, count our lucky stars that we have this opportunity to help these guys who are already 96% there get 1% better and who knows what that 1% will lead them to, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, humility is the way. I mean, that's the, it's the only, only, only way I think that a lot of people get to success because of insecurity and they're driven by it. And I think that's why we see a lot of people are successful who are miserable because if you're even successful but still really insecure then you know what's that do for you so when I came out on tour yeah I wanted to be the best and I was going to do this and do that and do this and I mean if I could talk to that kid now I'd be like you know you just need to let it chill and let it unfold and just stay curious and stay passionate but curious more than anything you know read that tattoo on your arm for me if you would Oh, my favorite, uh, it's from Redemption Song. Bob Marley's one of my heroes. And uh, it's, I asked my dad what this meant when I was 12. And uh, it, it's uh, from the second verse from Redemption Song. It says, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So when I was a young kid, I was like, I don't really get it. But I, I super get it now. It's like, you know, when people think the world is against them, they just don't realize that it's just them. And when you understand that, so when Bob's saying, Bob's pretty much going to die with cancer at this point, and he's realized that, you know, as he's talked about the duppy conqueror and the colonialist and the white man and all this stuff holding him back, he's realized they're near his deathbed. 
his last song he ever recorded was that uh, he was only ever shackled to the confines of his own mind. And so nothing's happening from outside in, like circumstance and situation have no effect on us. It's really just our estimate of it. So when people are like, well, traffic stresses me out. And I say, well, all the time? And they're like, well, not all the time. I'm like, well, then it can't be traffic. You know, like I'm sure if you had a video on my kitchen of when I'm finding my wife annoying and charming, everyone watching would say she's being the same. <laughs> right? So it's, uh, I think that's going forward. I'd like to get maybe 10 years from now. Um, if we did another podcast and we were with one of my clients and you'd say, so, uh, young man, did you know that Sean used to be a swing coach? <laughs> I didn't know that. I think that's the, the, that's the progression I think is of getting to that level. Like, um, cause it'll be a philosophy professor. Well, no, just, uh, I, you know, I just think it's helping these young kids understand, you know, what, you know, what goes on and what doesn't go on and, and uh, get them to understand themselves and get them to understand that, that, yeah, it's, it's not happening. Like no one's putting pressure on you. Pressure's just coming from yourself, getting them to realize like it's okay to be confident. It's okay to not be confident as long as you're competent. And I think overall, what I look at after being out for 10 years, we don't know how to practice. We don't practice properly. Uh, we don't understand analytics and statistics enough to realize what a good shot is. So there's a lot of guys who play the front nine, hit the ball, and, a, and from an analytics and a data standpoint, very good, and go back to the range because it wasn't good enough. But their idea of hitting it to 10 feet every time is a total pipe dream. It's never going to happen. Um, you know, the most greens in regulation ever hit for a whole year since they've kept stats is Tiger Woods in 2000. He had 13.2 greens per round. And people always think. Like, In other words, he missed five. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So, you know, that's, you know, that that doesn't help. And then I think the training, it's like I just did an article in Golf Digest on how to practice in a way that's more significant to how you're going to play. And I found this incredible, like shocking. I, I, I fact check it 10 times to make sure. But. Since 2012, more Navy SEALs have died in training than have died in war. And that's kind of what I'm looking at. Like, not having golfers die, obviously. But what <laughs> that, that means that their training is more difficult than the war zone. And these guys are the special forces. So are we doing it right or is just everyone doing it wrong and we're the best at doing it wrong? And I, I think that. I really feel like that's what's occurring. Like, a guy gets done playing golf for five hours. He's been at the course for two hours before that. Then he has lunch and who knows what he eats. And then he goes straight out to the range and practices for two hours. What other sport practice when they're done playing? You have to recover. Well, but, but why is rest and recovery not looked at something that's part of performance when it completely is? You know, you look at pilots, you look at surgeons. I mean, it's very strict on what you can and can't do. And, you know, we're built it we grow up in a society where they're like you know work hard and you get what you want and that kind of permeates itself into our actions and what have you but i don't know man tiger woods jack nicholas jason day roy mcelroy those guys have what do they play 17 tournaments a year and my young kid siwoo kim uh been with them since the la open and i love this kid and everyone's going to know about this kid he's he's seriously special <laughs> he played 14 out of 16 weeks Insane. ball speeds down 10 miles an hour all this stuff and you know it's like hey young man come here let's he's 21 
right? I mean, so I, I have empathy. I get it, right? But we need to look at this. 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 With a player like that, by managing schedule, kind of looking at overall diet and, and, and using, you know, using biochemistry and blood work to see what we're intolerant to, what we're tolerant to, uh, doing tests with sleep, dehydration, all those stuff. If I just run those things with the medical doctors I know and some of the, the other sports performance experts I know, I could help a guy like Siwoo Kim so much before I even look at his golf swing. And I think that's the way forward. You know, that's the way forward. Yeah, I mean, it has to be a holistic approach. It, the, the emphasis on one part of training is, it's baffling. Yeah, no, and that, I, you know, it, it's kind of, that's kind of what it, you know, that's, I guess that's what it is a little bit, but it's, I've just learned this stuff because I've been out here and I've met fascinating people or I've been in positions to be around top basketball coaches or football coaches or track coaches and pick their brain. And it's amazing the amount of science and evidence that Olympic athletes are using and they're not even going to get paid. They're just trying to get one second better, like one second better. Um, so why not? Like someone's going to do it, you know? Might as well be your guys. Might as well be us, you know. Um, so yeah, just just trying to just trying to learn, like trying to wake up every day and pretend like I've never don't even know anything. I'm just gonna learn today, and you know I've been fortunate to be smart enough to put myself around much smarter people and listen to them. Well, as for tonight, you're going to be late for dinner. I better let you go. No, we're good. I hope we'll do another podcast and it won't be 10 years from now. No, but. no, we'll, yeah, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, we'll do We'll, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll get, we'll get the, we'll get the feedback from the, the <laughs> likes and, and the likes and the non-likes and see where we go from there. It probably well, won't affect the next one very much either. I don't think so. <laughs> but in, until then, thanks for dropping science on us here. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just, uh, I uh, I love what Mandela said because people had Mandela like on and, and obviously look I'm not by any means by using his name comparing myself I got a long way to go, um, but they said to him you know you're just a saint like you're amazing and he says well a saint is a sinner who just keeps on trying and I think that's <laughs> so valid right we're just to live by I'm it. as big a screw up as I, I mean how do you think I know so much about what I know about is because no one has you know no one has I guess, you know, screwed up as much as I have. I mean, I, I was public enemy number one to myself. So this isn't, this stuff's not come because like I love when people go, it's just your gift. And I'm like, my gift, my gift to be the biggest like self, self-defecating, you know, try to make it, make life as hard as possible on myself. That's what this has all come from. So none of it's, uh, I'm speak. I'm telling people I'm speaking from, I, I know exactly how it goes when you see it the completely wrong way. There's not a right way, but there's definitely a wrong way. There's self deprecating and there's self defecating. Yeah. Shit on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're not at all the same. Well, thing. you, you, you see, you see like that's, that's kind of the thing about, uh, about hip hop is, is that, I've listened to it so much and I've wrote so much and freestyled so much, like your ability to use language, like saying something like self-defecating, right? I think that comes from Lauren Hill, uh, where she says, I'll defecate be, on the microphone. I'll be Nina Simone yeah. defecating on your microphone, right? Yeah. I mean, that's such a classy way of saying a nasty thing. Yeah. Um, I always love it. My kids know that entire song. Oh, well, why not? I mean, she was fantastic. And then she, you know, I don't know what's going on with her now, but, um, 
yeah, I guess she. This is probably just a minute. Uh, it's it's as I always say from from the the most massive issues in society to everything. It's all still coming from an innocent misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. If that's really you know, and I don't want to dumb down the things that people go through, um, but it is an innocent misunderstanding. So, anyways. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> this was awesome. <laughs> thanks, Sean. All right, we're signing off here. I, I, we can't top any of this with any jazzy outro, so we're just we're gonna end it right here. I think I, I I think if you can get like if you can get the loop from it ain't hard to tell or from the world is yours from Illmatic from Nazir that would be fitting. Then I would do it again. Okay, well, so if I can hear those Pete Rock horns, then I'll come in. Okay, we would have to burn up the entire golf.com budget to license that, but we're gonna do it <laughs> for you. Right? No, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> All right. Okay, I don't think we can top any of that as a, as a farewell, so I'm going to end this right here. Sean, thanks for being here. Thanks to all of you for listening. Got a bunch more good podcasts in the vault coming your way, so hope you'll tune in. Until then, this is Alan Shipnuck with The Knockdown. Thanks for listening.